So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at the rest of Isaiah 9 and the first four verses of chapter 10 as it makes one unit together. Thank you, sir. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it this morning. Our Father, as we come to Your Word, we are again met with a difficult passage. It's only difficult because we have trouble with the words in it, not because You're difficult. We are the ones who are difficult. And so, Lord, we pray that You change our hearts, that You melt our hearts, so that they would be molded by Your Word, and so that we would no longer seek our own truth, but yet we would seek Yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Todd brought up the story of this young man in an OPC church in California. And he could very easily be the subject of my introduction as well. But I read another post. It was a Twitter post from a man who was a pastor. He would claim to be a believer for 40 years. He was a pastor for 20. He even pastored a megachurch in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, not that megachurches somehow make you better or anything. It doesn't. Uh, it just means that you have this very wide audience. So this man had a very wide audience. He was very well known. Well, he recently left his church and the faith. And he had this very long Twitter post about it saying that the Christian faith was essentially all smoke and mirrors and that he had felt so much peace since he left and, you know, kind of the same song and dance that you've read and similar. He did fail to mention that it was an adulterous relationship that caused his eventual plummet. But I think the relationship that he had was actually just a symptom of an unbelieving and an unrepentant heart. I think what really struck me about this post and about the story that Todd mentioned as well is that he had been brought up in the church. He had heard all the right things, or at least you'd like to assume that he had heard all the right things. He still thought his faith, after all of that, was about what he could bring to the table. Ultimately, his efforts, his continued efforts to bring more and more to his faith proved fruitless, and he went after other worldly pursuits in order to satisfy himself. To read his words, it's obvious that he was not a student of the Scriptures, but instead a student of his own words, of his own idols. In our text today, we have a very similar situation with the northern kingdom, the prophecies against them. We've been talking about the northern kingdom for some time. Specifically, it shows that even though Israel, and consider Israel's upbringing, even though Israel was brought up in the word of God, even though they saw these miraculous things that we could only, we can't actually just can't imagine them, they did not continue in God's word. In fact, they went far away from it. They thought that they could do things on their own by making their own rules. And that isn't how God operates, though, and we'll see the repercussions of that in this text today. It definitely is a warning to us as well that we should not take our faith for granted. If you've grown up in a Christian home, 
which is a lot of you here, if you've grown up in a Christian home and you've only ever heard about Jesus and the Bible and all those sorts of things, then you probably do take them for granted, at least at some level. And you've probably developed patterns similar to the ones that we see in our text today and to the pastor that I mentioned. It's an important warning for us to be firm in our faith and to continue in it, that we always showing our faith to be true, that we continue seeking after the author of our faith, Jesus Christ. So as we consider this text, I want to look at each of the four stanzas within the way this text is arranged. It's, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. These four particular stanzas. So four points. National pride, failed leadership, social upheaval, and then rampant injustice. And so with that, let's look together at our text. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 8. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim, and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him, and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is, outstre- his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches Lies, who teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Though through the wrath, for through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are still not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will they do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For this, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his his hand is stretched out still. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so we see here a very vivid picture of 
curses for Israel concerning or from the Lord. And I think it's helpful for us to kind of get a picture of this. You know, God is in a covenant relationship with Israel, and he said, I will always be your God, you will always be my people. And I think oftentimes when we think of this, we only see the good part of that. What does that mean? Well, I think it's good for us to get a good bearing on what these blessings and curses and where they come from. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26 is a great chapter for reminding us the blessings and cursings of the covenant. Leviticus 26, starting at verse 3. Here are the blessings. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you, give you your rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last till the time for sowing. And you shall eat bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and your short sword shall not go through the land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you a fruitful, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. And he goes on and on. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. These are the blessings. Notice, when do they get these blessings? If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. Well, there's another one. There has to be another side to that coin, right? Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, and this should, this should bring Isaiah to light for us, church, as we read these next few words. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever, that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down from before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins." And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. He goes on. This is a people, let's don't forget, if you go back to Exodus and you read those opening chapters of the book of Exodus, this is a people whom God delivered from the hand of Egypt specifically set aside for himself and he saved them and he did all these miraculous works 
And he wishes to give them all the blessings in the world. He wishes to just heap upon, heap upon blessings them. However, if they turn against his word, which is very plain, the word is, they will receive discipline. Because God doesn't allow for them to serve two masters. They can only serve him. And the curses are there to show who is God. Same thing he did to Egypt. He went into Egypt to show the Egyptians who was God. He does that to his own people as well. And in case you may somehow think that this is breaking the terms of the covenant, that God is somehow being unfair in his judgment, God shows us how merciful he is. As he continues on in Leviticus 26, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery, that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate, Without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules, and their so abhorred my statutes. Yet, for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, because I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant of, with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." It's a fantastic chapter, again, to reference again and again so that we can see how much God loves his people, yet how much he loves his word and how he won't share his glory with another. Those things can and do coexist, those two ideas. In Christ, we are free from any ultimate curse. He took that upon himself. But the New Testament is clear that when the... When the believer needs discipline, the Lord will bring it. And so it's also clear to those who are only pretending, that are playing the Christian game, so to speak, but don't actually believe anything of what they hear. And that brings me to the first point, national pride. Verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 9. Or verse, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. This word that the Lord sends, we'll read later in this book, that when the Lord sends his word out, it always accomplishes that thing for which he sent it. It never returns to him void, is what it says. When he sends out his word, he, can, he knows that it, it will accomplish exactly what he plans for it to. It never fails. In the early dawn of creation, when the Lord said, let there be light, Light came to be, and it lined up next to the Lord and waited for instructions. It, everything does what he says for them to do. So when Israel hears the word, they should listen. But instead, how do they respond? They respond in arrogance, verses 9 and 10. Or verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. 
quick word about this term Ephraim. The term Ephraim um, is Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. You remember Joseph was a child of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was the one that was taken into captivity into Egypt, which is the whole reason that Israel was in Egypt to begin with. And Joseph had two sons. And when Jacob was passing out blessings to all those sons, rather than blessing Jacob himself or Joseph himself, he blessed the two sons of Joseph. Manasseh was older, Ephraim was younger, and so Manasseh should have gotten the blessing of the older son, but that's not how it happened. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 48 if you want to do that, but essentially what Jacob said to Ephraim is, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings. What does that mean? That the name of Ephraim will be synonymous with the grace of God. That when they hear the word Ephraim, it will remind them of the time that Jacob blessed the younger child of Joseph. That this name, Ephraim, should bring to mind the goodness, the mercy, and the grace of God. When the people thought, when they thought of these two half-tribes, as they're often called, they should remember how good God is. And now, Ephraim is hearing about the judgment of God. And what do they do? They throw it right back in his face. Ephraim, who should have been grateful for all that they had been given, none of it deserved. They were the youngest child of a twelfth child. They deserved no blessings. But yet, they were given all the blessings. And what do they say? You've taken our bricks away? Okay, we'll just build with stones instead. You've taken our sycamores away? That's fine. We'll just use cedars instead. In their arrogance, they're throwing it back in God's face. So what does he do? He's God. And so he raises up armies to devour them. And that's exactly what happened. And notice the second part of verse 12. And this was a common refrain that we read. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. We see this three other times. His anger is not turned away. What does that mean? It means that it will be satisfied. God in his anger over sin will be satisfied every time. All the arrogance and selfish pride of the world won't turn away the anger of God. In fact, they inflame it. The Word always does what it's supposed to do. I don't want this to be lost on us here today, especially for those of you who are sitting here and you've always known about God's Word. You've always heard it. You've always been a part of it. You kids who are sitting here this morning, when I look at them, when I look at you guys, what do I see? I see blessing. I see abundant blessing. You've been brought up in a home where you've never not known the name of Jesus. You've always heard the word of God. You were raised by families who made sure that God's word was important. You were among godly men and women, not just your parents, but among the others here. You've been fed. You've been clothed. You want for nothing. When people look at you, when the world looks at you, what should they think of? Abundance. Provision. The very grace of God working itself out in your lives. And if you think that that somehow makes you less under God's God's radar, 
you've got it all backwards. The people who are regularly exposed to the blessings of God, yet throw them back in his face, will be like Israel when Assyria came in and burned their cities to the ground. This isn't to scare you, but to make sure that you are counting your blessings, that you are showing gratitude for the grace of God in your lives. That goes for you adults as well. You've been given a gift that the people in Isaiah's day would have loved to have seen. They would have loved to have been able to look and see the Messiah. Well, we have him. He's here. What will we do with it? Brings me to the next point, failed leadership. Verses 13 and 14. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed, in one day. They were unresponsive to his divine discipline. Remember from Leviticus 26, what did he say? That if they did not respond to his discipline, that he would bring sevenfold what he had originally brought. Well, that's what's coming. This is like the pastor who was caught in the affair. Rather than deal with his sin and accept correction, he doubled down on it. And it renounced his faith completely. So, how does the Lord respond? How did he respond to Israel? He says he cut off head and tail. He expounds on what this means as he continues on 15 and further that the elder and honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. Their sin is simple. They have been leading the people of God astray. Because of this, the people of God are, as the text says, swallowed up. And what happens as a result of this? Verse 17, Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. And how many times in Scripture have we heard that we are to show mercy and compassion for the fatherless and for the widow, and here we're reading that God has no mercy or compassion over them because of the sins of their leaders. His anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. This is a warning to leaders, whether it's elders in the church, parents at home, Leaders in positions in which one is given some sort of spiritual oversight over another. All of those things could come into play here. When the leaders are corrupt, the people will follow suit. When I have disrespectful students at school, for instance, I'm never surprised when I meet their parents. Doesn't mean that all good parents will have sweet little kids every time. I'm not saying that. Definitely isn't the case. People are sinful. Children are people. And so we should expect to see that in them. But if you raise a kid to be ungrateful, you will reap those rewards every time. We have to be careful here because this is very easy for us to sit on our laurels as Christian parents and we think, oh, great, I'm doing everything right. And somehow think that we're just going to guarantee us this perfect little product. And that's not how it works. Just look at Israel. They saw things that we could not even imagine. Go back and read those first chapters of Exodus. If you think seeing is believing, they saw the Red Sea stand up on its end. And just a few weeks later, they were complaining that God wasn't feeding them. 
That's not how it works. They were blessed abundantly, yet they still turned away from Him. It demonstrates for us, in leadership, for us as parents, what should we be doing? Turning our face to God. Seeking His help. Absolutely. Only ever. There's no other way. There's no other hope. It's prayer for the church to bring up their children together. We need help to do this together. We must make sure that we are giving them something real. Because all the memorized catechisms in the world will not help a wicked heart. Let us be a people who lead our children. And whenever we lead, let us lead carefully with our reliance solely upon the Lord, not upon ourselves, because it won't be good. We need to rely upon the Lord alone. Brings me to the next point, social upheaval, verses 18 through 21. He goes on talking about the burning and the the land going to be scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. Very vivid image there. No one spares another. I want to point that out. Notice who the people are for towards the end of this horrible time in, in, in the northern kingdom's history. They slice meat on the right but are still hungry. They devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. What does that mean? Well, he tells us. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. Israel, during this time when they should be coming together, during this time when they should be seeking one another and seeking their Lord for help, instead, they are turning against each other. This is what happens when the word is ignored, when the leaders lead people astray, everything goes off the rails what is left of society begins to devour itself. I used an example when we were in Isaiah chapter 6 of The Lord of the Flies, that novel, very good novel, works here too. What happened to the boys when they found themselves on that island without leaders, without their normal moral standards? Chaos ensued. And eventually, all of the violence that they were against, the things, the enemies that they had dreamed up, well, eventually they just began to turn all of that violence toward themselves. They were no longer concerned about the enemies, only about devouring one another. You see that in the northern kingdom. You can read about it happening throughout history, one country after another, suffering the same fate. Ultimately, it's because they abandoned the truth. They exchanged it for a lie, which was, we are God. It's easy to see our own country in this, of course. We've been convinced that it has to do with the person who's in office and that person's going to save us. Though it has nothing to do with that, of course. It has to do with the fact that we are a country that continues to deny the truth, continues to deny the word of God. We'll only see more and more moral decay as a result of this because his anger will not be turned away. His hand will continue to be stretched out. It has nothing to do with the person who's in office. It has to do with whether or not we're keeping to the Word of God. That's why the truth is so important for us as a church. That's why we preach the truth. That's why we have the truth in front of the people all the time. Without it, we don't know who the real enemy is. We'll turn on ourselves really easily. You can see that in churches all the time because they split over things like drum sets 
And because someone's name didn't get mentioned when it was their birthday. We see this when anything is the standard of truth. Then there's no guess as to what's going to happen. When the standard is God's word, everything comes in line around it. It's the beginning of wisdom. And it's the end of wisdom. When the church returns to God's word, the country that we are in will see the fruit of that as well. We'll stop being worried about the person who's in office and we'll turn our hearts back to the one who has always been on the throne. That brings me to the last point, rampant injustice. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. Here we have the inevitable outcome of the previous three stanzas, where the word of God is absent, the leadership has failed, the people are turning on one another, all justice goes out the window. All care and love for one another goes away. It's only complete and utter selfishness. This is the inevitable outcome of Darwinism, by the way. The idea that only the strong survive and that we are somehow a product of that. If we are a product of the strong surviving, then what do we need to continue to do? Be strong and drive out the weak. It's okay for animals, then it's okay for us as well has to be the end of that, right? And the weak and helpless have to take a back seat to the strong. Just look in our society, and you see this all over the place. If there's no real value in people other than they're strong, then we get rid of everyone who's weak. Babies are an inconvenience, so they're medically removed. Or at least that's the word that's used. They're murdered, as if they were a mole on someone's face. Homeless and hungry are shuffled into government programs that only exacerbate those issues. They don't actually help them. The issues with foster care and orphans, if you have any window into that at all, you know it's all over the place. It's not to help those poor kids at all. Why? Why do these things exist? Because we're selfish. And to that, what does God say? Verses 3 and 4. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? All of these things that you have gathered for yourself. What will they matter on that day? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners and to fall among the slain. For all this anger, for all this, his anger is not turned away. and His hand is stretched out still. What's the answer? How can we possibly get out from underneath a God who will not abide our sin? And hopefully you saw yourself in these passages. If you somehow said, okay, none of that applies to me, so I'm good. Then you don't get the point. He will pursue the sinner to the uttermost so that he can get justice. So that his anger can be satisfied. What is the answer for a country that is following the pattern of this text almost perfectly? Jesus is the answer. 
On the day that Jesus was crucified, the anger of God did not turn away from him. In fact, it was focused solely upon him. Because it was on that day that Jesus had upon himself the sins of all of his people, past, present, and future. When I think of my own sins, if he had just had them on him, I can't imagine the wrath that he would be due. But he had all of our sins, brothers and sisters, past, present, and future. The Assyrians were only a temporary judgment. What Jesus would face was ultimate. The anger of the Father was not turned away, and his hand of justice and wrath were stretched out on his Son, his perfect Son. And the Son died. And when he died, the anger of the Father was turned away. The wrath and justice of God were satisfied. Jesus Christ said, It is finished. And the way that we know that is real because the sun wouldn't be held down. Instead, he arose. And he is right now at the right hand of the Father. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin that the anger of God would be turned away from us and toward him so that I could have life. Something I don't deserve. The hope for us, the hope for our country, in fact, is the only message of hope that is out there. No social program, no presidential candidate, none of those things can hold a candle to the Prince of Peace, mighty God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, people of God, let us be a people of gratitude. To take the word and hold it dear. It is important. The Lord sees it as important. It's his word. Let us seek after truth. And let us tell the word, the world, about the only way, truth, and life. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We are a people who are so easily persuaded by all the wrong things. We deserve the wrath and judgment that we read about this morning. But instead you gave it to Jesus. That we could have life. Yet there are many who right now face your judgment. They will face you. And so Lord help us. To be ones who proclaim your truth. It's the only truth available. Help us to proclaim it boldly that others might know that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.